Hey everyone, Ben here with a quick interruption before we get into today's episode to let you know that we have been nominated for a Sports Podcast Award. Yippee! That is very, very exciting. We are actually incredibly honoured and excited to have that nominee. And you, the listener, yes, the very person that is listening to this right now can help us win a Sports Podcast Award and get us on the podium for once rather than always being off the podium. To do so, head to sportspodcastawards.com. Dot com register to vote click on the best olympic and paralympic podcast category where you can then vote for us to win now you will have to listen to the other nominees as well but let's be honest you know you're going to vote for us because you're listening to our show today which means we know you like us and we'd very much appreciate the vote in advance sportspodcastawards.com that's how you do it and we thank you in advance and everybody who votes for us we promise to thank you in our acceptance speech should we win. Right now, I'm going to shut up, play some music, and then you're going to hear me talk again as we get into today's episode of Off the Podium. Enjoy. An Olympics podcast coming to you today for another episode, another interview, and a very, very exciting episode for you today. We are speaking with two-time Olympic long jumper David Colbert, competed at the Seoul and Barcelona Olympics, but you might know him best from his commentary days. He has called every single Olympics since the 2000 Sydney Olympics, mainly known for being behind the microphone in field events. And also a variety of other events was the man behind the mic calling Jess Fox's gold medal win in Tokyo and uh, plenty of other sports across the years. Uh, A great man to chat to about two sides of the spectrum. We're going to learn a lot about his athletics career and a lot about his commentary career here as well. A very famous call that I remember from Sydney that he was part of. Talk to him a little bit about that. He goes into sort of techniques around the commentary box, those famous one-liners that we do here in the box. We've heard a lot from past commentators on the show about how some of them are a bit pre-planned and he kind of goes into that aspect of things but also talks in his athletics career the experiences of competing in the Seoul and Barcelona Olympics competing against the great Carl Lewis of course, he was uh, in the same event as Carl Lewis, winning two gold medals, two of the four gold that Carl won consecutively in the long jump. And really just a, a great insight into all spectrums here of commentating and competing at the Olympic Games. So uh, without further ado, here is our chat with two-time Olympic long jumper, David Colbert. <laughs> Always very excited to speak to guests on this show who combine their athletic prowess with a broadcasting prowess. And we've got a great guest on the show today, a two-time Olympian and somebody who maybe is better well known to a lot of our listeners as a voice behind the last six or so Olympic Games, has been involved in a lot of coverage uh, over the years. And I'm very intrigued to learn about both sides of his career and we're going to learn a lot about that today. Please welcome to the show, Mr. David Colbert. Dave, first of all, welcome to Off the Podium. It's a pleasure to have you on the program today. Hi, Ben. Thank you. Good to be here. It's uh, always exciting, as I said, to learn about these different side of things because I, I can imagine when you were growing up and you had sort of Olympic aspirations, if you would have told yourself that you would have gone to about eight Olympics, you probably would have gone, okay, yeah, I'll take that. That's pretty exciting. And uh, maybe not realizing that <laughs> maybe most of them kind of would have been behind the mic instead of uh, being someone called on. 
Yeah, and no, you're right. So every Olympic since 1988 um, now and a couple of Winter Olympics as well, although I've never actually been to one. I've just been broadcasting them from back here in Australia. So um, no, you're right. I would have never have dreamt of that when you're a young kid growing up. You, you know, I wanted, I didn't want to go and play AFL football. I, I liked playing it and I did play it, but I never wanted to, you know, be um, wear a baggy green. I wanted to go to the Olympics and be an Olympian. And But one of these other things that I used to be fascinated was uh, with the coverage. So, you know, I'm that old that I can remember watching the old numero uno and Olympic minutes, they were called. They were little vignettes of the Olympic Games and they fascinated me just as much as, the as you know, competing. So, you know, I've always been a fan of, of the broadcast of sport, um, you know, whether it's the Melbourne Cup or an AFL Grand Final or, a, you know, an F1. Um, you know, I love watching it and consuming it and um, looking at the way it's, broadcast and how the commentators go and all those things. Um, so I've always been fascinated in both of those things, but I never would have thought that I'd, I would have, uh, you know, been to uh, um, so many games, that's for sure. In terms of those Olympic aspirations, obviously we're going to talk about your long jump career, but sort of was that always the goal? Was it always to be a long jumper? Were you dabbling in a variety of different sports to try and uh, fuel those Olympic dreams? It was always athletics, so um, it was never really anything other than than athletics. I did, I played hockey at school, and um, you know I actually played in a school hockey team with a couple of players that went on to play for Australia at the Olympics. So um, I was never at their level. So it was always athletics. Whether it was the long jump, I guess it. I should have been a decathlete. That would have been the event that I would have been better at. But uh, we never really did pole vault at school, or even in my club there was um, there wasn't a pole vault coach or you know anyone that was able to teach that discipline but you know I would compete on a on a weekly basis for my club and do every event other than the pole vault and you know I was pretty handy all-rounder but there came a point in time I guess when I was 16 or 17 where uh, the long jump was the event that I was you know edging towards I wasn't fast enough to be a sprinter um, at that level so um, you know and then the next thing you know you're you're competing for at your first Commonwealth Games and um, World Junior Championships and then Olympics and, you know, off you go. Um, and I was able to be competitive enough without being, you know, super at those events that I didn't have to change events either. So, um, you know, I've got a theory in, in, in the Darwin's theory of uh, athletics is that everyone starts off as a sprinter. In fact, this, is, this applies for sport. If you're going to be anything in the world, you'll probably choose to be the fastest person on the planet, male or female. And so if you can't do that, then you move up to other events. And if you can't do other events, then you do other sports. And it's brutal, but I think if anyone in the schoolyard, you don't, you don't, I know I um, ribbed Steve Monaghetti about this. At lunchtime at schoolyard, you don't see you can run around the oval, you know, as many times as possible before the bell goes. You run to the nearest pole or you sprint to the nearest bench. So everyone starts off as a sprinter. Um, and I finished up being a long jumper. So I probably got through about four or five evolutions of uh, Darwin's theory of, of sport before I found the, the long jump. I, lo- I love that theory. That's a very good point because, I mean, you think about it, what's the only real sports that anybody takes part in school with if you're sporting or not? It's the athletics carnival, right? Like that. that's it. And what's the one that if you have to do it, I'll, I'll just do the 100 metres. I can't be bothered doing anything else. Um, yeah, probably. Although I think you, most schools probably have a swimming and athletics carnival and you play, you know, we're lucky in Australia, you play a range of different sports and, you know, that's not to discount how good Ash Barty is, but, you know, I might suggest to you if Ash Barty was fast enough to be the fastest woman on the planet, she may not be a tennis player. So yeah. she might argue with that. I didn't like doing it, but I would think if you're capable of being the fastest person on the planet, then that's what you do. And what's that progression like then when you're focusing to long jump? You're mentioning you're making Commonwealth Games, you're making, you know, all these big championships and that sort of stuff. Is that kind of all of a sudden when these dreams for an Olympics starts to really ramp up? I mean, I can't, I can't imagine going to a Commonwealth Games. I mean, straight away after that, two years away, Olympic Games, this is a realistic possibility right now. Um, it's incremental steps the whole way. You know, you, you go to, um, you know, 14 and 15, you start doing school carnivals and, you, you go okay, so you enter the state championships and you go okay, and then you might get in. You know, I got into a development squad that I was, you know, I went to the um, the IAS when I was in probably year 10, and all of a sudden there, there are people there that are in the Olympic team. So, um, you know, whether it was Ken Lorraway or 
um, you know, Ken and Robin Loraway or Vanessa Ward, the high jumper. And these are the people that you, you're seeing on TV. So you think, well, I'd like to keep doing that. I actually did my final year of high school in 1984. So Gary Honey was competing in the long jump. Darren Clark was running the 400 in the athletics team, Rick Mitchell and co. And so these were people that I knew and had, you know, a little bit to do with. So, you know, I went from from class to class in 1984 with, you know, rolling the old television set that you used to have on, you know, this is how old I am. You had the TV on a, not every classroom had a TV, so you had to roll it from room to room and then plug it in. Um, and so I would just basically have my own TV for the um, period of the Olympics. Wow. And actually took a note to school to say um, David won't be coming to school tomorrow because the Olympic long jumps finals on um, <laughs> by my parents. And um, so I stayed at home on the day of the 1984 Olympic um, long jump final. So all these little steps. And then straight after school, I went to the AS in Canberra and then, you know, you're in a high performance scenario and, you know, you're sort of expected, so you're then part, partly your job. So you're expected to be in the, in a games team. So that's how it happens. But it doesn't, you know, it doesn't happen in, a, in an instant. There's all these little steps up the ladder to get you to, um, you know, the, uh, the, to, to being in an Australian team. What's it like then having someone like Gary then involved, you know, silver medalist? That'd be a pretty cool little thing to kind of have that somebody that you can sort of look towards and just coming back from the Olympics, having taken the day off school to watch him. Yeah, well, he wasn't, uh, he ended up being a training partner, but he wasn't initially. So, you know, my, first experience of all of that was up in Canberra at the beginning of 1985. So there are a lot of Olympic athletes there in, in a lot of different sports. So that was pretty, uh, pretty good environment to be in. Actually, one of my um, PE teachers at school was Alan Crawley, who was in the long jump final with Bob Beeman in 1968. So he, he wasn't, you know, he was the head of our, our athletics team and our main athletics coach, PE teacher, etc. but he wasn't my coach. So it, the influence was strong, but not overwhelming. So, but I, I think most, and we saw it recently in Tokyo where you see athletes of today with photos of their heroes when they're little kids. So it's all these little steps that, you know, you become exposed to all of these things. But Gary ended up being a training partner, still a great mate, um, you know, a great influence and, um, you know, unbelievably hard trainer. And the standards that he would set were extraordinary. So you have all these little moments, you know, throughout your career um, that gets you to where you want to be. Do you remember that moment? when you were officially qualified for the 1988 Olympics and kind of what that moment was like reaching that dream that you'd set yourself out so young? Um, well, I, yeah, I do, of course. And it was actually the day the team was announced was the day of my 21st birthday. So the Nationals were in Perth and I flew back to um, to Melbourne and you know, Judy Joy Davies, who was a, um, an Olympic swimmer but was the Herald Sun or the Sun um, the sports writer for athletics and swimming in those days. She was parked out at my parents' place out in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, waiting for, for me to get home. And the team was picked when I was in the in on the plane. So, you know, they'd announced that it was happening. So I found out then. Um, but I was injured as well. So I had a heel problem, which, you know, carried through to the Olympics. So it was more when I first qualified, the first time I jumped eight metres, I jumped 8.13 in the Victorian Championships that year to qualify for the, for the team. And that was the, you know, that was the big breakthrough that got me, got me there. Um, because I didn't qualify at the trials. I came second to Gary by I was trying to survive with a heel injury. Um, so, yeah, I do remember that. Um, I don't think about it very often, but um, I certainly remember um, that Victorian Championships and that that jump that got me in the team, that's for sure. Because it's always, we, we've spoken to a lot of field athletes on on the show where it's kind of that distance barrier, you know, there's ultimately these little steps that you take in, in long jump and as you're saying, getting, getting over the eight metre one. And, and it's always, as much as it's a physical sport, it's that mental aspect of it too to try and crack that. I mean, how, how much of a focus sort of in the 80s were things like sports psychologists and kind of things helping you with the mental aspect? Was that much of a big thing around sort of uh, people like yourself back then or is that something that's kind of only really taken off over the, the last, you know, certain amount of time? No, it was and certainly, you know, not when I was um, – yeah, well, a lot of it then is, is, the, is the amateur psychologist of the coach, right? So I had a, an old coach at Ringwood, Tony Lesbridge who, you know, had a really broad squad, um, national and international level athletes. And we'd go there in winter at Proclamation Park and we'd be doing our rep 200s and he'd be blowing his whistle every whatever the time was that he, you know, that you had to be at the finish line and then start the next one. So that was his, 
You know, you don't have to do it, he'd say. You don't have to do the next rep. You don't have to. But you won't be any good if you don't. So is that psychology? <laughs> Probably. Well, kind of. <laughs> yeah. You know, you don't have to get to the finish line by the time I blow my whistle. But if you don't. So that was something that I always remember. But at the AIS when I first went there in 85, you know, this was a world-leading organisation then. And so, you know, it was in the beginning days of, of the sports science and, and medicine and and the physio, you know, set up there was unbelievable. And there was a sports psychologist, a guy called Brian Miller, who is still around in Australian sport. In fact, he's on the board of Athletics Australia at the moment. He's had a very long, successful career. And look, did he... It, so you'd have sessions with Brian and he'd teach you some things and visualisation and all of those things. I was never too deep into it. I think I was pretty well motivated myself and had the, the coping skills and all of those things. But they were certainly there in those days. It's changed a lot now. If you look at what the mindfulness and those sorts of things, your social media age and, and the distractions are completely different than what we had when we were competing. But, um, yeah, no, certainly they helped, that's for sure. And I think what you're... You know, you're getting to the the, the the distance. You know, I knew I had to jump. It was probably eight metres. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was probably eight metres to qualify for the team. You know, if you stood at the top of the runway thinking, I have to jump eight metres, you'd never have done it. So you were just concentrating on on the five things that you needed to or three things that you needed to, um, you know, achieve and do on that particular attempt to jump as far as you could. I can definitely see why now that someone like uh, you know Nicola McDermott's writing in a diary to kind of just clear the uh, clear the old mind up there and kind of those sort of things because I I can imagine now that uh, yeah with things as you're saying social media all this extra attention that you didn't have back in the day you, you need to take a few moments to write some things down and just block the world out yeah possibly although I have to say and I do talk about this to young athletes I would have loved to have had social media when I was competing I don't mind the haters um, they sometimes invigorate me I. I I would have been one of those ones that would, would be tweeting from the runway. Should I bring my run up, you know, back a foot? Vote now. Um, you know, should I wear the green socks or the white socks? I would have been all over that sort of stuff. I would have loved it to have that sort of interaction and build a base of supporters and haters and all of those things. I would have carried them all. It wouldn't have bothered me in the, in the slightest. I would have liked it. Wow, that's a that's a good point to have. I think I'd like to see more people doing that. Like, okay, hang on, I'm just about to compete. Just let me tweet. What should I do here? Give me a second, guys. Uh, I'm not sure if the judges would like that eventually. But hey, look, you know, there's always one person can start it off. Well, I do a bit of it from the commentary box. It's a bit hard, but during the Olympics, I did a couple of you know the recent Tokyo Olympics. I did a couple of things, and one was um, get out your tape measure and measure how high the high jump bar is right now that Brandon Stark is jumping. You know, measure two thirty and stick it up on your um, in your house, and while you're at it, measure out eight. Yeah, and measure while you're at it, measure eight meters. In your, if you've got a hallway that's long enough, or your apartment, or whatever has got a space, measure out eight meters and have a look at how crazy that was. And to see the the number of photos that people were sending me of them measuring, you know, the kids were taking of their dad standing on a chair with a with a tape measure, um, you know, was extraordinary. And I tweeted that the the, um, the, the picture of the score sheet that I was using for Nicola McDermott's high jump when it was getting really complex in the um, in the countback and you know this is how busy this is and people loved it and I think that you know we all sit there on double screens I do when I'm commentating because you're getting information from a whole range of different sources um, yeah so I would have loved to have competed in the social media age um, and not everyone is the same but for me I'd, I would have loved it yeah, I think you might be the first person I've ever spoken to who wasn't in that age who actually wishes they were. It's yeah, it's usually the the kind of opposite. People are often like, yeah, I'm glad I wasn't. You know, kind of. We had Kieran Perkins on recently, and I think he kind of alluded to something about that that like would have been completely different. The amount of pressure he would have gotten ahead of Atlanta that he was already getting uh, if you kind of add social media and everything to it. Well, there's probably a big difference between Kieran and I. He was the red hot favourite to win the gold medal, and I was just a battler trying to make it into the final. So I might, I might have had a different situation if I was, you know, expected to win versus just there to uh, try and, you know, get on the podium. So, um, yeah, it's that's I why you're on off the podium, Dave. That's that's why well, we're here. Like, you know, correct, correct. Of, that's where I'm best suited. Yeah, yeah. So do you go into each of the, the games kind of with different expectations? So your first Olympics, you're mentioning sort of an injury. Is it a case of uh, do my best, both times make the final, both times aim for a medal? Kind of like what's the mindset heading into both Seoul and Barcelona? 
Yeah, absolutely. And the same with the Commonwealth Games. You, you're to, to do your best. That's the that's the first thing. Prepare as best you can and and do your best. So in in Seoul, you know, in the end, I had to have you know painkilling injection in my heel. I had a cyst that was the size of a fifty cent piece that you know was every time I I took off, it was like someone was jamming a screwdriver into my heel. Ouch. So I was no good. I nearly made the final. I didn't miss. I missed by about ten centimeters or something. So, um, but I was no good and had operation straight afterwards. In Barcelona, by that stage, I'd finished sixth in the world championships the previous year, and I'd you know um, come second in the Commonwealth Games, and I'd had wins in Europe. And so I was. There was Carl Lewis and Mike Powell, and they were a long way ahead of the rest of us. And then there was me and you know ten other people that potentially could have got a medal. But again, just. You know, I'd had great years in 90 and 91, and by the time 92 came around, I got injured, had a quad injury that effectively ended up finishing my career. Um, almost didn't make it to the games, was in terrible form, could hardly train, was jumping six, 760, 770, and somehow I managed to jump eight metres in the qualifying round and qualified for the final. But the final was the next day, and I couldn't – I could I, – I'd, basically, the way to describe it was my leg. If my leg was a shock absorber, if I jumped two days in a row, I would lose 100% shock absorbing capability. So I basically wow. just had no bounce. So I was like a, a tennis ball. If you sliced it open, it would mm. land on the ground and just stop. Rather than mm. it had no, I had no bounce. Just couldn't wow. go. And so you know, I finished 11th and jumped 770 something, and it still irritates me that I wasn't able to make the top eight in the Olympics. Um, but you know, that's the way it goes. And that was pretty much, you know, I was on the downhill from then. I had 93 off and came back in 94 and managed again to somehow conjure a performance at the Commonwealth Games, nearly won, came second again, um, and retired. So, so there was no, no, no prospect of, of going on towards Atlanta or nah. just the body wasn't? No, nah. I went back up to Canberra and it would have to, you know, have an hour of physio to loosen up my foot and ankle and um, quad to be able to even train. So, no, I was uh, I was done completely. So, and, you know, I then had the opportunity to start working. Um, I was already working, but to work with Athletics Australia and set up their media and communications marketing area, promote meets and start commentary and do all of those things. So I'd had a pretty good run, but, you know, sadly, I just, I, 90 and 91 were the, the best years most consistent, biggest distances, et cetera. Um, and from then it was injury that, that cooked me. We always like to find out from our athletes kind of those Olympic experiences. Obviously you've been to so many Olympics and, and two of them as, as an athlete, but do you sort of remember those sort of moments when you say got to the village and everything back in Seoul, those initial like just moments where you're soaking in that Olympic you know, experience and then was it much different coming to, to Barcelona or were you sort of so focused on competition you weren't really able to kind of take those moments in at the time? Um, oh, they're hazy because they're a long, long while ago. Um, you know, I remember, and photos help, that's for sure. I remember, you know, opening ceremonies kind of. I remember... I don't remember much about Seoul. I remember, you know, watching the um, the the final. My parents were were there, so I remember some some moments of that in Barcelona. You know, I certainly remember, um, you know, being out there for the final and walking out there in the opening in, in the um, for the final and thinking, well, here I am. I remember a lot more about, you know, the '91 World Championships because you see it more. And that's that competition where Mike Powell broke Bob Beeman's world record and I was great mates with Mike, so I was sitting next to him throughout the competition. And so I remember a lot more about that. But it's only superficial. It's only superficial. In fact, you know, this is how bad your memory is. I I always thought that my last jump of my, you know, career in um, at the ninety four Commonwealth Games was a foul and that I was filthy that I didn't I fouled my last jump and I didn't, you know, I, I didn't improve and get that gold medal. Mm -hmm. And I found a VHS tape of it recently when we were in lockdown last year and I was digitising them and I found it and I came across the last jump and I didn't actually foul. I jumped a pretty good jump. wasn't good enough to win it, but wow. I felt a lot better about myself that I, you know, <laughs> I, I didn't foul. I did, it just wasn't good enough. So that, that, uh, that made me feel better. 
Wow, geez, that's that's incredible. I, I can also imagine too. Uh, you know, you obviously both Olympics you're in. I mean, Carl Lewis was in the middle of his kind of uh, four gold streak mm. there, and going back to that point where you're saying you took the day off school to watch it. You know, you, you're watching Gary get the silver, but. I can't imagine you're watching someone like Carl Lewis back in 94 thinking that I'm going to be competing against this guy in the next two Olympics and kind of being part of this history-making run that he obviously famously went between 84 and 96. Yeah, well, that's that's right. So that was, um, you know, he was he was the star. He's the athlete that you had on your um, in the poster on your bedroom wall. Um, and I remember I was in the same group as him in, um, in Seoul in the qualifying round and Gary was injured, hurt his quad, and couldn't compete. He was there, but had to withdraw. And we were in the call room and um, I walked in, sat down, car walked in, sat down, he's sitting there and blah, blah, blah. And he said to me, Hey, um, where's your, uh, where's your teammate? I said, I, you know, Gary he said, yeah. He said, he's, he's injured. He's not here. He goes, Oh, that's sad. And I thought, how cool is that Carl? You got no idea who I am, Carl. Still doesn't know who I am now, <laughs> even though we're in the same competition on a number of occasions. Um <laughs> And uh, yeah, so that was that was exciting to be in that in that situation. But that that lasts for five minutes when you're an elite athlete. The first time it happens, you think it's really cool, and the rest of the time they're the opposition. So yeah. you don't you're not fanboying for very long. When it came to retiring and then switching into the broadcast side of things, you mentioned before that it always fascinated you. I mean, was it a, as an easy transition? Do you just kind of you know tap Bruce on the shoulder? G'day, Bruce. How you doing? I'd like to join you in the commentary box, or is it kind of a little bit more uh, work involved in kind of going behind the mic after retiring? Oh, well, this is a question I get asked a lot by aspiring. You know, kind of strange now that I'm in the situation where young um, people are asking, how did, "How did you get to what you're doing now?" And it's a bit like your athletics career; it's a lot of little steps. You know, I I would. I'd, I'd do the ground announcing for interclub competitions and club competitions in Melbourne. And then I had the opportunity to do that um, at the national series meets. And then, you know, the ABC were broadcasting domestic athletics at the major, you know, the, at the Grand Prix level in Australia. And I was the expert commentator doing field events. And so I did that for a little bit. And then, you know, I started being able to call the field events and then I was doing expert commentating on, on the track events and, and calling the field events. And then, you know, if whoever was there wasn't available, I was calling the track events. So all of these little things happened. And then it was the 94, sorry, the 98 Commonwealth Games, which was my first, you know, major event. Um, and I was doing expert comments on the track um, with Terry McCall of calling the field events. And it sort of went from there. I worked at Channel 7 before the Sydney Olympics and had an opportunity to, you know, We've got a canoe slalom test event, World Cup at Penrith. Um, you know, Dave, do you reckon you could call it? Yeah, okay. But no idea what it, I didn't, no idea, no idea, but I'll give it a whirl. I worked with international triathlon, so I was already calling, doing some triathlon stuff, and I played hockey at school, so I started calling hockey events. So all of a sudden, you know, these little things that, you know, you did a Champions Trophy hockey or you did a test event here or you did a World Cup triathlon or, and then, you know, at the Sydney Olympics, I did triathlon, volleyball, athletics, um, did some hockey matches. You know, I did all sorts of things um, because they just needed people. And I guess if you didn't stuff it up, you you, um, you got another chance next time and it went from there. Which is so All these little steps. Which is kind of part of the fun, isn't it? isn't it? Like, I mean, I've always grown up wanting to do broadcasting, sports commentary. And I know during my radio days in Hobart, you know, we would just – go along to any event we could and and do commentary. I mean, we were a bit more Roy and HG than Bruce McAvaney, but we would still be kind of having some fun with it. And it's a case of, sure, I'll call this sport, I'll call that sport. And, you know, once you get that opportunity, hey, you're going to do a canoe slalom, do you just kind of just grab a book, do what you can, or, you know, kind of read as much as you can? Or yep. do you, are you type of person who kind of can be natural and kind of know the basics and then put a microphone in front of you and then kind of go from there? Oh, you could, but that would be doing a serious injustice to the the sport and the athletes. So, um, no, I do a lot of preparation. And uh, just to go back to your point about, um, you know, broadcasters, because I think, you know, there may be some people listening that want to know how they do it and what, what they do. And that's why the ABC is such a good breeding ground for our great commentators. And it's because of the ABC is in so many corners of Australia that young kids get the opportunity to call, you know, the local football and cricket. And then all of a sudden, you know, someone listens to the tape or hears it and then you get the next opportunity and the next opportunity. And because there's so much streaming now, that's sort of like the the, the modern day 
ABC radio yeah. that yeah. there are streaming um, sports are streaming local level club level stuff and if you're good you know that'll be that's how Hutto started it's how you know the late great Clinton Griber started Matt Granlin you know Alistair Nicholson everyone they've they've all come from somewhere doing something at a local level to be able to develop their careers so I remember um, Alistair Nicholson growing up in Hobart yeah. in the ABC like yeah. uh, vividly um, yeah. you and know, a brilliant he, broadcaster and yeah. you know, was part of the seven games team as well as what he does with the ABC doing really so, good with the hockey yeah, yeah. fantastic yeah. work and so your question about preparation I do do a stack and I take it very seriously because in fact it's t- so I have a training program like I'm an athlete systems you know schedule um, uh, you know I I hardly ever throw anything out. I've got boxes of stuff from previous games, which I whittle down after the games. And so it's ready for the next one and with previous results. And then it's watching, listening, talking, you know, so for the canoe slalom, you know, I watched, I watched two years of world cups in, in the two weeks before the game. So I, um, you know, read, listened to podcasts, you know, got insights, spoke to, coaches and then of course I had Richard Fox Jess's dad sitting next to me so which only happened in the last week so I didn't really need any of the stuff that I'd done because I had him <laughs> sitting next to me I could have just read out names um so the triathlon yeah and and the track and field the same thing and for the Paralympics it was exactly the same I do a lot of work um and you know Bruce has been the, the one that showed if if you know if, if I think I do a lot of work in the lead up to a games Bruce does 10 times more work and to give you an example, if there's an athlete from Azerbaijan in lane three of the 100, I'm pretty happy to know something about the athlete from Azerbaijan. Bruce would turn up knowing how every athlete from, you know, what's the best performance from Azerbaijan at the games so far. So it might be in weightlifting or it might be in judo or it might be in karate or whatever it is. That's the level that he goes to. So he knows all there is to know about the athlete from Azerbaijan, plus their best events. I know where to find it if I need it. He's actually looked at it and he may never use it, which is his complete genius that he would use. He'd use about half of what he's got at his disposal when he sits down to commentate. Look, we, we never say Amazing. no to any good Bruce stories on this show. And, and, you, and you, you talk about being in a room with Carl Lewis. I tell you one thing, if I ever ended up in any form of media situation with Bruce Mack, that's my Carl Lewis right there. I'm just, I would just, I wouldn't speak. I'd just stare. I don't get starstruck <laughs> often, but I'd just be like, Fuck, it's Bruce Mack. What do I do? What do I do? Um, which it's kind of, it's, it's one of those moments. My, my favourite memory of your calling, and I'm sure this is one that probably gets brought up to a lot. I remember during Sydney, during the long jump, I remember the famous jumping Jai, it's time to fly moment for, for Jai Tarima. I mean, when you're in those moments when as a long jumper yourself, this is your sport and you're in the midst of watching, you know, this, this great performance from an Australian, how, how do you kind of try and keep professional when I'm sure deep down you're, you're heavily rooting for this guy. You're, you're really wanting Jai to kind of get this goal that Australia's never been able to get in the long jump. Um, yeah, it's a good question. It's only really happened. It's happened three times probably where you're desperately wanting someone when you're commentating, when you're desperately w- wanting someone to win. And Jai was one. Mitch Watt was the other in London in the long jump and Steve Hooker in Beijing because I've known Steve for a long time. And obviously I've been in, you know, as an expert commentator when Kathy Freeman or Yana um, Pittman have won world championships and, you know, Bruce is calling and, you know, I was there in Sydney in the commentary box when Bruce and Raylene were calling Kathy. And, but you're not actually talking, so you don't have to worry about it. You just turn your microphone off and, and watch. Um, so it's it's interesting. I think I've been lucky that I've had a couple of really good producers. One was the very first one at the ABC, a guy by the name of Ray Hume, who, you know, was uh, was really good at giving you tips and, and how to commentate and um Seven had a mantra for a long time as well about the sounds of the games. So you don't have to talk nonstop. It's television. You don't have to speak. So let the silence. And Bruce was a master of silence as well. Still is a master of silence. You don't have to talk the whole time. Um, and, And the other one that has always stuck with me is the best ad libs are well prepared, which Mm -hmm. is a line from, from the head of sport at seven. And so jumping giants time to fly came to me six months before the games. And I'd write wow. these little notes down about things. And, um, you know, Dennis Cometti with um, the heart of the line and the heart of Dixie and the you know, rare gold, the best kind of gold. You know, they're generally 
a good commentator's generally thought about what they're going to say when the moment comes. And um, just wish had a, Jai had a one, then it would have been one of the great lines of all time. And I tell him that all the time, Jai. If I had, a, if you had a one, jumping Jai, it's time to fly, would be one of the great lines. Um, yeah. So, and then when to use when to use them and do other things. So, but you are cheering. You're cheering externally, but and we're we're commentating for an Australian audience. So, when if you look at Je- Jessica Fox. It didn't matter what Richard or I said during that race because no one was listening. No one was listening to what we were saying. Like when they watch the replay and on the news and the grabs, they're listening. But Australia was on the edge of their seat. We could have said nothing for the entire time and it wouldn't have made any difference whatsoever to to Australia's enjoyment of that moment because they knew what was going on. Don't touch the gate penalty. Don't miss the gate massive penalty. Time clock pops up with plus or minus. Pretty straightforward. Which it still, though, must be strange from your perspective, though, because, yeah, you're right. Like, it doesn't matter. We're watching it. But when they show the replay, your voice is going to be on that forever and a day. I mean, that that is always what Australians will hear when they see in four years' time, three years' time in Paris. We're going to see that. You know, it's always going to be there. So does that... Does that ever cross your mind as a broadcaster thinking, like, is that coming back to where you're saying the best sort of lines are prepared, thinking that this will be a replayed moment over history? Um, no, because, well, kind of, yes and no. You, you don't commentate for grabs, but you actually have to commentate for the grab because that's the, you know, it's the studio discipline of having pauses so that editors can edit clips and so commentators aren't talking over the top of each other if you've got an expert. You know, Richard and I, in Tokyo weren't in the same room. He was in Sydney and I was in Melbourne. So it was pretty um, it, it was pretty easy not to talk over the top of each other because, you know, you had the moment extra silence because he was in Sydney and I could see him on a Zoom call and, um, you know, so he was on a little computer monitor and so you had that discipline. Um, but that's just the, 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 you know, being a broadcaster in this day and age. Um, and it's the thing that, that, Everyone hates the most as as commentator if everyone's trying to scream and shout at the same time. When the most the caller calls, the caller calls until the caller doesn't want to call anymore, and then the expert has their comments. And so it's a pretty simple rule. And if you're in either of those two boats, and I'm lucky that I've flipped from one to the other, you know, in that canoe slalom, my job was to get them underway. Richard would take over once they went through the first lot of gates, and in that final. He actually didn't speak for probably three or four seconds longer than he than he would have on every other run, and it threw me a bit. And I just waited, and then he picked up, and away he went. And then my job was to 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 talk about up or down, up or down. And we knew what gates we'd get the up and down. And then once they came around the final gate, I'd take over. And that were there are rules, so you just follow those rules, and then. You know your question about commentating for the for the highlights. You know, at the end of the day, it's the start and the end, isn't it? Yeah. Unless it's a Kathy Freeman race and you see the race, you know, all the time. And again, Raylene's job with Bruce was not to say a thing until Bruce had finished. Bruce said, "You know, what a victory! Magnificent performance! Pause, Raylene. What a relief! Yeah. You know, just yep. the the greatest." Three words in expert commentating history. Yep. Summed it up in three words. <laughs> Complete genius. Which it's it's interesting sort of going back to your point about how you were always fascinated about the broadcast side of things. I mean, I'm exactly with you there. And, and some of my favorite Olympic moments I remember because of the calls. I mean, one of ones we use in our, our winter sort of intros when we've got winter athletes on, the Bradbury gold. It's, it's yep. you know, Basil's famous call at the end. They all fall down. Bradbury's going to come through and win gold. Like you just, you just remember these. You talk about the Kathy moments and kind of all that sort of things. And it's kind of, it's interesting when you say you have future broadcasters coming to you and asking for that advice. It's that, that, you know, speaking on behalf of these people, we're like, we're never going to be an Olympian. That, that, that's kind of our Olympics. Like, we're watching that. We're hearing those calls, those famous calls and dreaming of those moments. So it's kind of, it's interesting when you would have people come to you and say, I remember jumping Jai Time to Fly or the Jess call and kind of talking to you about those things that maybe, as you're saying, you're not necessarily thinking about that much. Well, so, you know, Basil's, Basil's a great, com- Basil's Amplis is a great commentator and, um, you know, his call of Titmus and Ledecky and, um, you know, to 
become a legend, you've got to beat a legend. Um, you know, that was – we saw him, you know, before the race and he knew what he was going to say if the moment arrived. I can tell you he didn't know what he was going to say when the moment arrived with Steve Bradbury because there was no expectation whatsoever. No so you've got to have <laughs> – and Bruce, I don't think – you know, I, I might be putting words in his mouth. He's not a big deliverer of a pre-prepared line, but he never gets it wrong, ever. He's a complete genius. And we were watching the AFL Grand Final the other day and there was a replay of um, West Coast and Sydney and Leo Barry, you star. Yep. And my son said, you know, he, before it came down, he, he said, Leo Barry, you star. And um, he goes, oh, you know, do you know the guy who was – said, yeah, Steve Quartermain. He goes, what a great line that was. He's, and it's, like, quarters wasn't – you can't prepare that. Hmm. But it's a, it is one of the great lines in you – know, it's like hit the boundary line. Yeah, Jessalinko, you beauty, beauty, you know yeah. things yeah. like that that are just yeah. forever known, right? Yeah. Like that's uh, yeah. So that's it's crazy. a privilege to to be in that situation where you um, you're calling those uh, those moments. So, you know, I'm a I'm a small player in all of these things because you're not, you know, the field events aren't the prime ones of the games. It's not the hundred meter final. It's not the swimming. Um, and I sit back and watch what happens with our broadcast in Australia of those events. And I'm in awe of how good our commentators are and um, how how well they do in that situation and how, how that's been, you know, since Norman May and Dennis and Sandy Roberts and, um, you know, all of those, Bruce, of course, and incredible. Have you ever had one that you've written down and gone, this is going to be perfect, this is going to be so good if this moment comes and you've never been able to use it? Oh, yeah, all the time. Every, n- not every event, but. Absolutely, because Olympic gold medals are um, are not easy. I've got an absolute ripper if we ever finish one two in something. In a, All right, in can, can you share it? Or is that no, gonna be, of course not. You're not going to you're not going to spoil it. No, 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 no. no, absolutely, all the time. And you know, that's part of the thing that you know when you're broadcasting. You know, sometimes you're only thinking about it on the day. Um, you know, you and you, but you can't be a slave to it either because. You can't crowbar it in, and I think that the, the, the all the commentators would say the same thing. You might think of it, but you can't just use it if the circumstances don't allow. Because what, what works for a for a, a victory by one hundredth of a second doesn't work for a for something that um, is a cakewalk. Mm. Can't commentate a ten goal victory the same way you you commentate a. Uh, come from behind one point win in the dying seconds. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, I, I personally, I really hope that, um, you know, with some of those lines, I really hope we all go gobbledygook for Zach Stubbledy Cook was a pre-prepared, uh, <laughs> bat- or if that was just off the cusp, Basil, that was... Uh, that was that was up there with some of the great calls that we oh, need to Basil remember. Basil will be thinking about what he's going to say, and you know, <laughs> as you should. And if you if you were commentating the AFL Grand Final recently with with Melbourne's win and you didn't have something ready to go yeah. for a 57-year drought, then yep. you're not doing a job, are you? And every one yep. of those broadcasters would have had had something in their mind to yep. say. I think it was uh, when we had uh, Joanna Griggs on, she was telling the story about uh, Rio, about Chloe Esposito's win, about basically the uh, the kerfuffle around the Channel 7 offices oh, and all yeah. of a sudden they've gone, Hilarious. shit, who knows how to call modern no. bentathlon? We need yeah. someone. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can tell you, I was there that um, – that we'd done the tri- um, the marathon and we had a track session, I think, that day. And so we'd only just left um, to go and have a rest, um, to come back to do whatever it was. Or we might have even been finished. Might have been in the last day, so we might have been finished. And Scotty McGrory walked in just as we'd walked out. And anyone know anything about, uh, you know, it wasn't even anyone know anything about Scott. Get in there and he, what? He had no idea. And they were... <laughs> Pass some bits of paper into him, and he didn't know how the he did an unbelievable job, yeah. an unbelievable job in the in those circumstances. So that happens as well. And um, you know, he's become he's another guy who's become a you know an Olympic gold medalist, an expert commentator, who's now able to carry you know the broadcast. He worked with Phil Liggett a lot in Tokyo, but he also did the track you know as the lead caller with Anna Mears, and they were just sensational. 
Yeah, I agree. That was fantastic. Is there a sport that you've not done that you would love to have a crack at if you ever got the opportunity? Well, I would have loved to have called more more AFL. I, I called two games of VFL semifinals in, in the days of C7 and Dave Barham called me one day and said, oh, Andy Mark can't do it. Can you? I said, oh, I don't really. Yes, I'll send you the tapes and you know, there's only you know 22 players on each team. Can't be that hard to learn their numbers and et cetera. And I'd called hockey and et cetera. So I called those, I did two semifinals with Pete Donegan and Dave said to me, oh, they're fantastic, those calls. They're really good. You know, we'll, we'll get you doing the VFL matches all next year on C7. Went broke about two weeks later and went into liquidation <laughs> and that was it. So that was the end of my AFL calling aspirations. Um, you know, I've been, I do a lot of, I do the Australian Open every year and, and love that. And, but I, it's great to be involved in those things. I don't, I don't harbour the, the aspiration to be calling the final of the Australian Open, for instance, because you're surrounded by people that are better than you when you do it. So I know my spot. I'm, I'm very good at doing the mixed doubles, quarterfinals, semifinals, finals, if, if you're lucky. Um, but when it comes to field events in the Olympics, that's probably where I'm, I'm at, which is why I look forward to it every four years. Is there a sport that you've done that you go, no, never again, don't want to do that one again? Um, not really, not really. Snowboard cross at the at the Olympics is pretty hairy, um, particularly given the format that they go from, once they do their seeding rounds, they basically go quarterfinal, semifinal, race for the finals straight off. So it's like two hours of nonstop. They basically just go straight back up to the um, – and they reorder the colours and do all of that. So I've got I'm no good at memory. I couldn't call a horse race, so I'd have no chance of calling a horse race. And I, I did the stall gift this year, um, and uh, it was a bit hairy because those circular races where there's just colours. You know, Matt Hill could look at them and and colour name straight off. Terry McAuliffe's a genius at, at doing that as well. He just you know just look at the the colour and we'll know the name like a horse race, whereas I'm terrible at that, so I have to have a big bit of paper in front of me to to be able to do it. So it's a bit tricky, but no, I, I think if you you know what your spot is, you 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 know what you're good at and potentially what you're not at. So you try and avoid what you're not at as best you can. Have you been tapped on the shoulder already to be part of the the Beijing coverage? Can we, are we going to hear your voice in in Beijing very soon? Uh, for the Winter Olympics, probably. I hope so. Um, I've done the last two uh, Winter Olympics, so. And I love it. Um, done the slope style. I didn't even know what it was when D- Dave Barham said, do you know anything about slope style? I said, I don't even know what it is, Dave. What is it? <laughs> yeah, snowboard. I said, hey, I know snowboarding, that half-pipe thing that Scotty James does. He goes, yeah, but there's this other event. Snowboard cross. Um, no, I really like that. I hope so because, you know, I love doing the Olympics and the Winter Olympics. And um, when we watch the the Winter Olympics, the last two have been in great time zones for, for Australia and we yeah. you know, the audiences love them. So we've got a great again, team. obviously. Beijing yeah. once again, which yeah. we're, we're, we're uh, advocates for Nordic combined, Dave, and I realise Australia <laughs> won't have any uh, athletes in the Nordic combined, but if they, no. they need like a 1am commentator, just yep. put your hand up. Hey, Nordic combined, absolutely. Let's get yep. into it. Well, if you're, you're, you're part Norwegian, are you? Yeah, well, hey, I, I, I mean, yeah, I'll say yes to Channel 7. So um, just uh, I'll, I'll leave my details with you. And if they need some Nordic combined commentary, uh, I, I'm I'm glad to, uh, to put my hand up. One thing, actually, I'd love to learn, did you get to the bottom of the sand in Tokyo, Dave? I know that was something that you were very <laughs> yeah. caught up on during well, the Olympics. It's actually funny because a lot of people talk to me about, you know, how's your, how your inquiry's going. You're having an investigation. You've got any investigations going this week. And it's funny when you say something just because you're a goose and then all of a sudden I decide, well, I might as well just keep this going, see if people, you know, um, like it or not. So the sand the sand was problematic. The sand was terrible. Um, the athletes that I've spoken to said that they've still got a gravel rash on their ass from the crap sand. <laughs> their spikes will never be the same. Um, apparently the volcanic, the volcanoes in, uh, in, um, in Japan have less silica. And so our sand is that silica white and they don't have that because it's volcanic. And so that's the different colors. Wow. And I'm saying, well, that might be true, but it's not a good enough reason to have black sand in your sand pits. They should have brought in some good old broom sand yeah. from the, you know, the beaches of WA, pristine stuff and put that in. 
<laughs> they can ship snow places. They can ship sand. I mean, that doesn't melt. So no, that's you know, true. Or created themselves. But no, it was. Um, yeah, it was. It, be, it, it grew a life of its own, didn't it? it yeah. um, and everyone, of course, in Australia was in lockdown, so most places. So they were all watching it. And <laughs> I think they thought I, the sand was as stupid as uh, as I was saying it. <laughs> we we had a lot of fun every day, just you know, trying to work out if you if you got into the bottom of that. Um, you're you're involved, obviously, too, with the the Commonwealth Games Federation. Uh, sort of tell us a bit about that role and kind of. How we're what less than three hundred days away now from Birmingham. It's that unique aspect, aren't we? That kind of got a Commonwealth game so quick to an Olympics now, yeah. given that uh, the thing. But I mean, how how things tracking for for Birmingham? Are we going to retain our spot on on top of the medal tally in not that long? Won't be easy because we're on their home turf. Um, that's for sure. And when we in, in Glasgow in twenty fourteen, um, the England, of course, because they compete for their home counties rather than um, the than Great Britain. So. Um, but England will be very difficult to beat in, in a range of different sports. Um, but no, I think that the, this, this once ever opportunity, and hopefully it is once ever that we go straight from an Olympics, Paralympics into a, into a Commonwealth Games, next year is going to be you know, incredibly exciting but also difficult for our athletes because they've, they've got to recover from an arduous Olympic campaign which went for one year longer than they, they thought, and Paralympics, of course, come home and do the quarantine, which hasn't been easy for a lot of athletes. Most of them are still resting now. They might start be just starting to get back into their training. Domestic seasons, which are still in, up in the air because of COVID. Um, trials. But then most sports have gotten a, a world championships as well as the Commonwealth Games next year. Swimmers are in you know, May or June in Japan. Athletics is in Oregon in weeks, weeks before the Commonwealth Games. Um, our power athletes in a lot of sports, have got their world championships after the Commonwealth Games. So a huge year. But, you know, if you love cheering for the green and gold, you don't have that two-year wait between games. And we've got the Winter Olympics and Winter Paralympics in between. Yeah. So we've got this double opportunity to to keep cheering for everyone's favourite team. And I think we'll see a big benefit from that from a media perspective, um, interest. You know, we, we're happy to get right into the Olympics for, for a couple of weeks and the Paralympics. And then... A lot of us are happy to, I'm not, but a lot of people are happy to bin it for two years and or th- four years and come back to it. Whereas to go straight into a Commonwealth Games campaign, which people like and we're obviously good at and it's world-class sport, um, I think it's going to be, you know, really good for our athletes and their profiles and, and financially and all of those things. So, um, you know, hopefully we can make the most of that opportunity. One thing I want to just quickly add, Dave, I realise you're getting this question a lot as we still don't know where 2026 is going to be. Now, New South Wales has been talked about. Perth, Basil put his hand up recently. Yeah. Bugger both of them. Hobart. Now, I, I started back in the day the Hobart Olympic bid. We didn't quite get the 2020 Olympics, but we're happy to just, you know, while Perth and Sydney fight over Hobart, we're, we're ready to go for 2026. Just saying. Well, we need a host for 2026. There isn't one at the moment. Um, yeah. And Australia does this better than anyone. So... We would love to have the games back in Australia in 2026. Uh, there's a whole range of reasons why that's important. None, the the least the financial benefits that spin to our members' sports and Commonwealth Games Australia, just like the Olympics, and hosting in 2032, huge financial windfall for the AOC, and then therefore programs and things that they can do. Um, why not Tasmania? I, I don't know about Hobart itself. I think you might have to spread your uh, the love around the state rather than just have a having couple to Lonnie and Deb. They can have like the bowls and something like that. Bernie. That. Yeah, Bernie. Bernie hosted the BMX. Smithton. You know. Yes, Smithton. Queenstown, they've got the gravel football oval there. Yeah. So, okay, know, so you see now you're talking. From a bid yeah. perspective, I think you've got, as long as you're, <laughs> you're a little broader than just Hobart, you're... Um, <laughs> Tasmania is, 2026. <laughs> well, this is the thing about the, the Commonwealth Games is that um, one of the... the um, things that has not scared or well, scared off might be the right word of other bidding cities is that Australia has done this so well. So if you look at Melbourne and the Gold Coast in particular, unbelievable jobs. They don't need to necessarily be as expensive as they have been. They don't have to be as grand as they have been. And the Gold Coast did a pretty good job of this. That yeah. you know, Metricon built a couple of um, 
of new stadiums, upgrade some others, build things that you actually need. And, you know, like the, the upgrading the, the velodrome, the Anamir's velodrome now um, in Brisbane will be a key part of the Olympic bid. But they built light rail and housing and all these things that are, are legacy items. So you, you do the things that you need to do and you don't worry about the things that you don't need to do. You don't have to have a 20,000-seat swimming stadium as much as you'd like to have one. You don't have to build new, you know, new this and new that if you don't need them. You just upgrade the things that you do need um, and build the infrastructure that will benefit you for um, you know, years afterwards. And you know, the MCG wouldn't look, look like it does now if it wasn't for the Melbourne Commonwealth Games. It might now, but you know, in 2006 when it was upgraded, and the Great Southern Stand and all of those things, it wouldn't have happened without, um, you know, having the deadline of the Commonwealth Games. So, no, I'm, get, get busy, Ben, with a um, Tassie 2026 bid. Hey, You've got a mascot. Fun. That's all yeah. under control. So Yeah. We're trying to revive it. Again, it was, it was fun back during the Hobart 2020. I've got now experience having worked at the 2018 Commonwealth Games, so maybe yep. I've got a little bit more experience to kind of go and see what it was like. So, you know, there you go. So... I'll uh, I'll start doing the uh, the groundwork before I let you go, Dave. Now, uh, obviously, people listening can't see what I'm seeing behind you, but you've got a great shelf behind you <laughs> filled with Olympic. I have to ask about this the the idea of collecting Olympic mascots. You got a plushies from uh, basically every Olympics. I think you're saying that you, you've been to. I mean, where did this idea come about, and and which one's your favourite, and why is it Izzy? <laughs> well, no one will know who Izzy you're talking about unless you're an absolute <laughs> Olympic freak. And I'm the only Izzy fan on this planet yeah. still, Dave. Well, I think what, what I love he? it. <laughs> well, his full name was What Izzy. Yeah. <laughs> so um, Still working which, that out. <laughs> which, of course, was the Atlanta mascot. So how did it first start? Um, well, it must have been Sol. So I've got the, the Tiger from Sol. So it was probably the first one. I actually didn't get one from my first Commonwealth Games in 1986. So I clearly wasn't that fussed about having um, a mascot then. So, no, I collected the first one and then it went from there. So it's not really the sort of pastime that a you know, ageing uh, guy does, collect plush dolls. But I must have, I don't know, there must be 30 there. So Commonwealth Games, Olympics, World Championships. And, of course, now you know, we had Sid Millie and Ollie in, in Sydney. So there's three yeah. of them. Beijing got really greedy. They had five. <laughs> um, you know, Olympics and Paralympics. Uh, there's a couple from each one. Borobie's probably my favourite. Oh, in fact, we just announced he's coming back as the Australian team mascot for the, for the Gold Coast. So Borobie's probably Borobie's up there. What is it? Izzy's a very strange cat. You need to Google it if you don't have any idea what we're talking about. <laughs> we always talk up Izzy just because it's serious. I mean, they made a freaking video game on him, didn't they? I remember there was like, Izzy collects the Olympic rings on like PlayStation or so. Probably the only mascot that's ever had his own Olympic video game. But um, Yeah. He, yeah. And was it not, Wenlock, the London one? Yeah, where, like, and, what the... and Wenlock and something else because they had the one for the Olympics and one for the Paralympics. So that's there's right. some very strange things here. Kobe was the, the bear from Barcelona. He's pretty cool. He's sort of got yeah. a uh, Salvador Dali type um, thing going on. Have you checked um, out the uh, the Beijing? Have you checked out Bing Dwen Dwen and Shui Ron Ron? The, no. uh, the two for the winters. They're pretty no. good. Like we've got a, we've got a panda and Bing Dwen Dwen, but Shui Ron Ron is a Chinese lantern. <laughs> so that's that's to me is up there for, with Izzy is one of the great all time mascots. Hey, what it's not easy to. So I've struggled to actually get. I don't have a Paralympic one from Tokyo. I've only got the Olympic one, and it was a struggle to get them. Trying really? to buy them online, impossible. Wow. And, of course, because of COVID, they shut down virtually every, um, you know, merchandise outlet. So there must be there must be hundreds of thousands of these things sitting in a box somewhere. <laughs> Just waiting to go. Do you, do you have any tips or predictions for Brisbane 2032? I mean, I'm just saying, like, I, I know Matilda oh. Kangaroo from 82. Can they bring yep. back and, like, yes. kind of do a reformed version 50 Absolutely. years later? They should 50 years later. It's a no-brainer. It just works. For the me. nostalgia factor, and still the giant, sem- the winking, you know, yep. coming into the stadium. Like, and it's still at a service it. station somewhere in um, in Queensland. So there you and go. it's had a paint job. So, um, yeah, absolutely. I think that's a – Matilda is locked in as far as I'm concerned. And I've already called it. We said this to Kieran, and you can take this on board right now. So when you're calling it, when you're in the opening ceremony in 2030, hopefully I'm next to you, Dave, but uh, – Kieran Perkins is going to get the torch. He's ready to light the cauldron. And just as he's about to do it, he's going to fall over 
and Stephen Bradbury's going to pick it up and light the cauldron. <laughs> that is the goal for Brisbane 2032. It has to happen. It's not bad. Who does light the torch in 2032? I think we're a long way away from even having to worry about it. But um, what happened in Sydney with the, the great Australian women? John Coates yeah. was before his time on that. When we, you hear all the amount of banging on that we do about, you know, it's been great to see the women's cricket team playing test matches against India and Greece just recently and the AFLW and all of these things. But, you know, 21 years ago, um, John Coates had Australia's greatest female athletes handing the baton one after the other after the other around the opening ceremony of the to open the games with, with Kathy. Wasn't a bad um, wasn't a bad choice, that's for sure. Yeah, fantastic moment, fantastic moment. Dave, before we let you go, you mentioned sort of the social media. You're on social media, you're very uh, active on, on Twitter. Where, where can people follow you if they kind of want to stay up to date with uh, what you're putting out there? And also anything else you want to plug while you're at it? Well, if you want to get takes on the Victorian political situation, you can follow me on Twitter at Colbert <laughs> underscore report, C-U-L-B-E-R-T underscore report. I'm not happy about that, I can tell you. Um, when you've been in a world record lockdown and keep people keep telling you that we should be excited about how good we're going, um, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. We're the footy team that hasn't won a game in two years and our coach is screaming at us. And I'm, it's not encouraging me to <laughs> play better. a great way better. to put it. <laughs> it's not encouraging me to play get better, that's for sure. Um, look, so that's the main one. Um, you know, follow our athletes. They're the ones. Follow our athletes. Find your favourite athlete. Follow Com Games at Com Games Oz. Um, but follow the Olympic team. You know, they're our, our sporting teams. So, you know, just like you do your favourite rugby team or AFL team or whatever it might be, Follow our athletes and support them because they're the ones that uh, that are out there doing the business for us. So get behind Fantastic. them. Fantastic. Great way to – I like that. Great work there, Dave. Dave, it's been an absolute pleasure to learn more about uh, both sides of your career and everything else in between. And, uh, yeah, I look forward to uh, calling the Nordic combined and very soon in uh, Beijing. Thanks for, thanks for passing on my resume to Channel 7. I appreciate it. Anytime, Ben. I look forward to um, not being your expert commentator on that, but I'll, I'll, I'll look forward to your call. <laughs> Massive, massive thanks there to Dave for his time. I'm in. I'm I'm in the box. Come the Olympics for Nordic combined. I'm I'm pumped. I'm glad that I've got myself a foothold in there. So the, the dream is being realised out there. So and Hobart, Tasmania, 2026 Commonwealth Games. Bring it on. It's happening. So uh, all these exciting things that we can put a footwork here and off the podium. It's a it's a pleasure to be able to be a part of and a pleasure to speak to Dave there. Uh, such a great chat there. Learnt a lot. And I'm actually really jealous of his mascot collection. Really fantastic. And uh, maybe I'll start off with Bing Dwen Dwen and Shui Ron Ron. Maybe I need to get myself a hand on both of them to uh, to do that. I've got my Borobi, so uh, there you go. And I think I've got a Sid Million Ollie something somewhere in a box to do with the Sydney Olympics. So uh, maybe I'll jump on board Dave's train there and start collecting some Olympic mascots. But uh, Dave, appreciate your time. Thank you so much for being part of the show. We are so close to two things here and off the podium. Our 200th episode and the Beijing Olympics, both are right around the corner. Stay tuned. They are coming very, very soon. Of course, Beijing, we've got daily coverage like we do during every single Olympics. Colin, Jared, and myself will be back giving you the results, the highlights. Commentary will be back as well. If you heard our recent Brit Cox interview, we got some tips from Brit herself, how to commentate moguls. So we're very excited for that. But stay tuned for all the great coverage in our 200th episode where you're going to hear highlights from episodes 151 through to 199 as we celebrate bringing you uh, the show that we love bringing you and that we hope you love listening to. And if you want to keep listening to it, maybe this is your first time you've listened to Off the Podium, you can subscribe to us, of course, on all the good podcast channels, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, you name it, we're on there. iHeartRadio, don't forget that one, that's a good one too. Search for Off the Podium and while you're there, hit subscribe. Leave us some feedback. Leave us a rating. We'd love to hear what you think of the show. And jump on social media too and hit us up there. Off the podium. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Send us a message. What do you think of the show? We'd love to hear what you think. And also any suggestions for guests or episodes, anything. We always like to hear your thoughts as we continue to put this product out for you. Big thanks again to Dave for joining us. Big thanks to you, the listener, for tuning in today to the show. As always, a special shout-out goes to Jason Mamon. And until we next speak again, go left.
what an episode. You loved every single second of it. It's been, again, just quickly reminding you once again, if you want to help us win a Sports Podcast Award, sportspodcastawards.com, register to vote, click on Best Olympic and Paralympic Podcast section, listen to the other nominees, and then go, hey, off the podium's awesome. They're so good. They put in so much work and so much effort, and we just love them, and they deserve to go on the podium for once. Ben's awesome. Jared's awesome. Colin's okay, but he's also kind of awesome. We'd really appreciate it. And particularly if you've actually listened to the rest of this and ended up here, because generally I assume you've well and truly tuned out by now. But seriously, if you're at this point of the podcast, then you're a true listener. And that means that you're a true fan and you should vote for us. Sportspodcastawards.com. Do it now. We will thank you forever. Literally ever. Like every episode moving forward, we will thank you forever. Sportspodcastawards.com. All right. Thanks for tuning in. We'll speak to you next time on Off the Podium. I'm really going to go now. Bye.